0: Good morning again. Hey, that's great. Thanks, guys. if you have your Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 1. We started a series last week. We set the stage for that series in the book of Revelation. But today we are going to start looking at the book of Ephesians chapter 1. We're only going to be looking at the first two verses. So just so you're aware, the first two verses. And you're like, man, I, didn't si- I signed up for more than that. Well, I, I, it'll be worth it, all right? As we are turning there, let me set us up this way. Back in the 13th century... When this little device was invented, it revolutionized the entire world. This device is not a stopwatch. It's a compass. When you think about this invention and the change that it brought about in the world prior to this, it was a lot easier to get lost, to lose your bearings, to not know what direction to head, to be kind of confused and turned around. And yet with the invention of this device, it was easy to find your bearings based on the direction? What direction? North, so point, which direction's north right now? Uh, I know which one, yeah, I was raised in Boone County. I know which way's north. Like, (laughs) all right, so I know, (laughs) so this changed everything because now, no matter what was going on around you, if you found yourself at sea or on the land, confused, turned around, disoriented, if you had this little device, it could point you in the right direction. You could overcome that feeling of being lost or the actual reality of being lost. You now had a way to find your way to safety. Now, true north requires a little bit more calculation, but in general, this got you where you needed to go. But consider this, I can go up to the store and for 59 cents, I can buy a little magnet and that little insignificant 59 cent magnet can alter this thing drastically. Now, all of a sudden, the very thing that was to lead you to safety with the presence of just this tiny, insignificant magnet can completely mess everything up. It can completely attract you to go different directions and get you back to being disoriented all over again. Something so small and seemingly insignificant. Now, I want you to picture that this is speaking about the direction of your heart. Your heart pointed in a certain direction. Like we talked about at the beginning of the service, you were created by God and you were created on purpose and for a purpose. God did not make a mistake when He created you. And the direction of your life, the purpose of your life, the direction that your heart is headed, is to be directed by Him. He is your true north. He is the one who should set the course of your direction, He should set your desires and your goals. He should be at the center of everything that you're called to do, but you and I both know that as we live in this life, there are many 59 cent magnets, aren't there? Many things that can distract us and pull us away from heading in the one direction that our life should be headed toward. Connecting with the heart of the God who created us and has given us real purpose is not as easy to live out as it is to talk about, is it? Lots of distractions, lots of things to pull us in multiple different directions, And those 59-cent magnets oftentimes, most often, come in the form of words, certain things that are spoken to us, certain things that we receive and we accept as a truth in our life that never should have been accepted. The words that people say to us and the identity that we're willing to accept because of what they've said to us become a major distraction from our true north, from understanding the direction our life should head. Dr. Kara Powell, she's a Ph.D. from Fuller Theological Seminary, and she's done pretty extensive research in studying the lives of teenagers, young people. And in her research, uh, she has concluded that the most important question that young people will answer in their adolescence as they're growing up in their formative years is this question. Who am I? Who am I? Now, included in her research is also the most common in our culture and in the world that we find ourselves in, living where we live. The most common ways that these young people answer these questions are three different things. The first one being this. They will say, I am, so who am I? Well, I am what other people expect of me. That's a very easy way that they, be, they, they are drawn to uh, answering the question, who am I? It's what other people want me to be. Right? Maybe you've felt that in your life. You've defined yourself Your identity, who you are as a person based on what other people expect of you. And so whether it's at your job or even in your home, among your friends, on your campus, wherever you're at, you find yourself living out the identity that you think other people expect you to live out. I remember living this one out vividly. 12 years ago, our church staff went and met with a counselor. I was not the lead minister at the time. I was just joining the staff. And I'm I'm sitting with this counselor, this person who's an expert in their field, and they give our staff multiple different tests. And based on the test, they determine a lot about your personality. This is why personality tests are such a dangerous thing at times. And in front of everybody I work with, the people that I was closest to in my life, this counselor proceeded to tell me out loud in front of the entire group, you are the most extroverted person I've ever seen. You have very little to no introverted tendencies inside of you. And I, in that moment, accepted that identity because I thought everybody expected me to live that way. I wasn't allowed now to have introverted tendencies. I had to live up to this new standard that my coworkers and friends now were given from this counselor. You see, it's dangerous. But many people, you you may have experienced this. Young people, the most common way that they answer who am I is based on what does everybody want me to be. The second one is this. I am not blank enough. So fill in the blank. I am not blank enough. And most young people fill it with these kind of descriptors. I am not smart enough because somebody told me, or I got a certain grade. I am not beautiful enough because of the standard that the culture tells me I need to live up to, and I'm not enough. I don't live up to the beauty standard that the rest of the, I am not successful enough, I am not gifted enough. In other words, I don't have what it takes. That's how they answer the very important, life-altering question, who am I? In their most formative years, the second most common way they answer that is to say, I'm not enough. And the third most popular way that they answer it is this. I am my image. I am my image. And what they mean by that is this. It's not so much what other people expect of me. I am my identity. Who I am is the person I make people believe that I am. And boy, has social media contributed to this answer. I am who people want me to be, or I am not enough, or I am my image. I can control who I am based on the image I put out there in the world so people are influenced to think a certain way about me. Now, I don't know about you, but my mind immediately when I read this research this week went to two different places. Immediately, the first place was this. The work that our student ministry and Matt Thompson are doing with young people has never been more important than it is right now in 2022. And I believe that with all my heart. And you're thinking, you're just doing a plug for the student ministry. Well, guess what? Welcome to New Hope. You're at our church, so you're right I'm doing a plug for the student ministry. You're absolutely right. And I believe wholeheartedly that the work he's doing and trying to get kids to understand that the answer to the question, who am I, points them to the true north. There's only one answer that's gonna adequately give them the identity that they were created to take hold of, and that is the word of God. I think that nothing's more important than that. So your sports schedule, your homework schedule, Your friend's schedule pales in comparison to the importance of being around the people who will love you and shape you and point you to answering the question, who am I in your most formative years? I cannot implore upon you enough to get your middle school and high school students involved in student ministry. The second place that my mind went to, maybe your mind went here as well, is this. As I, walk, as I read the research, and even now I feel it even more as I've walked you through some of this research, is this. It's not just teenagers. There doesn't seem to be any age discrepancy on this reality in my mind. The answer to these questions doesn't seem to go away simply because you age out of your adolescence. The answer to these questions doesn't seem to go away because you've lived long enough or had enough experiences. It seems to me the people that I'm around, myself included, have struggled with the answer to the question, who am I? And we have gone to the same three sources that young people are going to in our culture over and over and over again. And it all seems to be directed by the power of words in our life. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 says this, that your tongue, meaning your words, the words that you speak, have the power of life and death meaning every single word that you speak will communicate life or it will communicate death. And many of you have felt this, right? Many of you, if I were to talk to you, you would tell me, I have said words that I wish when they came out of my mouth were physically there so that I could run and catch them before they impacted the ears of the person I was saying them to, Amen? amen? Amen. We have said things that we wish we wouldn't have said. We have lived with the consequences of words spoken that we wish we didn't speak those words of death into the life of the person who received them. But here's the thing. If the words that we speak bring life and death, then equally important are the words that we're willing to receive. The words that other people speak to us or about us that we're willing to receive into our life are equally as powerful to bring life and death to us as the words that we're speaking. And this is the truth we're going to see for the church in Ephesus as we begin this letter. I find it fascinating as I've studied Ephesians that before the Apostle Paul will dig into the, the depth of the theology in chapters 1, 2, and 3, telling them what to believe and how God has directed the world and revealing to them this mystery. Before he does that and before he gets to chapters 4, 5, and 6 and tells them practical ways to live out that theology, he starts this letter with two simple verses reminding them who they are. He starts this letter by giving them their true north, by reminding them of the source of the compass that can get them out of the environment that they find themselves in that's trying to be that 59 cent magnet. If you remember last week, we talked about this city, Ephesus, this booming, exciting, giant, big city. I mean, this city that was completely captivated. It was over-sexualized, completely obsessed with power and money and success. This was what it meant to live a full life if you lived in Ephesus. And boy, everybody wanted to be in Ephesus because that's where you went if you really wanted to live. And it's in this culture that this church is tempted to start believing different things about who they are. I mean, you can see in the culture that we find ourselves in a small comparison to Ephesus, an over-sexualized culture that is completely obsessed with success, money, and power. And then you can look at your own life experiences, like I can look at my life experiences, and you can come to the conclusion, it's really easy to believe a lot of different things about who I am and what I was created for. And the Apostle Paul wants to set the tone as he writes this letter for reminding them about identity. And he does so in verse 1 right away. Here's what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus... It's important to start with who Paul is. He's the one writing the letter. He's going to reveal the mystery and give him all this information. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, what he's saying is this. <clears throat> he's giving them his identity. An apostle, one of very few people, depending on your calculations in the New Testament, up to 14 men that were reserved, set aside to serve in this special capacity to get the ministry, the kingdom of God going here on the earth, to begin to get the work of the church going. And the Apostle Paul was called by Jesus to be in this very special role as an apostle. But what's even more fascinating is this, that Paul didn't get called early on. It was later on. He had already accepted certain identities about himself. If you remember, uh, the book of Acts tells us that the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, meaning he was a protector of the law of God. He was a teacher of the law of God. And he wasn't just a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He rose to the top of his class. He had all the success you could possibly want. And as a result, got all kinds of power. So here's this guy who's a Pharisee of Pharisees, identifying himself exactly the way he was told to, and he thinks he's on the right path when all of that gets disrupted. In Acts chapter 9, when he gets knocked to the ground and he hears the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And his whole life begins to change. His new identity is about to be given to him and everything. He's completely disoriented. Everything to him is confusing in that moment. Maybe you felt that too. Where everything feels so confusing. you don't. What, what am I here for? What's my purpose? Why, why? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? And Paul receives that from a young believer named Ananias. Who didn't want to go tell him who he was. But God said you need to go tell him who he was. And when you go tell him who he was. Here's who I want you to tell him he is from now on. Here's his now. His true north. Here's his compass. Acts chapter 9 verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias. Go. This man is my chosen instrument. My chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Paul gets this brand new identity. This is who you are now, Paul. This is your new true north. This is the direction your life needs to head. This is the thing that should influence your decisions, your goals, your dreams. The plans that you make for your life should revolve around knowing who you are. And you're an apostle set aside to do the work of Jesus from now on. And that wasn't always easy for Paul. He understood this is a difficult thing for him. It's not always easy for him to remember. This is why I think Paul would open up these letters with this very common way that you would write Greco-Roman letter writing, but he would identify who he was and he would attach a title to it to remind him of who he was. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, Paul, a slave to the will of Christ Jesus. He would describe himself in a way that said, this is who I am. And here's the reminder for me. I am this person. And it was the word of Jesus. It was the word of God that communicated the will of God to the apostle Paul. That's what communicated his will for his life. That's what gave him his true north. But Paul knew it's so easy to forget this. And many of you would agree. Like, you're like, man, I'm a Christian, Rob. This seems like review. But like, really, if we were to walk through the next week of your life, how many times would you be tempted to completely forget and have total spiritual amnesia over your entire life, not knowing who you are and where you're, what you're supposed to be doing? And then you come back to church, and that's the importance of gathering together with the church because it's a reminder of who we are, because it's so easy to forget. Uh, This picture here is a man named Jeff Brady. A few years ago, living up in Marion, Indiana, this uh, young preacher was uh, the victim of a home invasion. These two thieves came breaking into his home, and they beat him up pretty bad. In fact, they took a, a, a brick, a cylinder block, and they bashed his head with it. For 12 hours, he laid there completely unconscious. And and here's the thing. After being unconscious for, for 12 hours, he wakes up in the hospital and has no memory of who he is. Zero. Just picture that for a minute. Picture that you wake up in a hospital room and have no memory of who you are, what happened to you and how you got there. Picture looking off to the side of the bed and you see this this woman who, or this man who, who seems to be caring very much for you, it's your spouse. But you have no idea it's your spouse because you have no memories with them. And you don't know why they're showing so much affection towards you, why there's tears in their eyes. A few moments later, they bring in a child. And while you can see the resemblance to you in the face of that child, you don't even know who the kid is. You have no recollection of who they are at all. A little bit later on, as you're laying and recovering in the bed, they bring in a whole group of people who come in and seem to show great concern for you, your your friends and the people from your small group, the people in your church, and they're showing deep concern for your life, but you can't understand why there might be tears in their eyes and they might be expressing gratitude that you're alive because you don't know who they are. And why do you people care so much for me? Can you just imagine how disorienting it is to completely forget who you are? Completely forgot who he was. And while over time... He did heal from the head injury. It took a lot longer for the memory loss. And you know what he relied on? Words. The people who loved him and cared for him the most, they came alongside him and they began to remind him who he was. And they'd show him pictures and tell him stories and share feelings and emotions for him because they loved and cared for him so deeply. And they began to point him back toward his true north and began to speak truth from God's word to him and to pray for him. And over time, with the consistency of being pointed in the right direction, he gained his memory back. It's an incredible story. And while most of us, we're not going to have to go through that, that physical amnesia, we go through that spiritual amnesia all the time. We live in a culture, much like Ephesus, where it feels at times like we've been hit upside the head with a cylinder block. And it's so disorienting to remember who we are and what our purpose in life is. We get distracted by paying the bills. We get distracted by preparing for retirement. We get distracted for raising the kids and making sure that they achieve all of their goals and all of their dreams. And they have everything that they could ever possibly want. We want the dream house and the dream car. And we get distracted by all these things and advancing at work and all these things. And it's so disorienting that sometimes we sit back and we forget who we are. The Apostle Paul wants to remind the church in Ephesus who they are. And so he describes them. He says to the Holy ones in Ephesus. Translation for that might say to the saints who are in Ephesus. This isn't like some some sainthood like in certain liturgical meanings. This is a descriptor of the group of people who follow Jesus. And it's fascinating because if you were to read through your New Testament, you're going to see all kinds of different descriptors of God's people. Holy ones, beloved, people who are cared for, my beloved ones, my children in the faith, the people that I love, holy priesthood, a holy nation set aside for God. But the most common descriptor that you're going to find in your New Testament for God's people is this term, saints. So the holy ones set aside, the saints, the ones who are in Christ Jesus. It's a descriptor of identity. It's a word To point them back to their true north. And it's a really important word in your New Testament. It's a very important word to understand why God would call us this. You know what else is true about this? Is that there's there's a certain word that doesn't appear on any descriptor of God's people. Now I need you to hang with me for this part. But it's fascinating to me that if you read descriptions of God's people. They're never identified as sinners in your New Testament. I think a case could be made that there's nowhere in the New Testament an individual follower of Jesus is called a sinner. First Timothy, the apostle Paul calls himself the chief of all sinners, but in the context seems to be referring to his former life, not his new life. Here's what I mean by that. This is not an excuse for us to not sin. Some of you are like, yes, peace, I'm out, right? (laughs) But there's nowhere in the New Testament where we're called sinners. And here's the point. When you are a Christian, when you have become a follower of Jesus, when you've been baptized into Christ and you are a new creation, when you're living this new life, nowhere in the New Testament are Christians then identified with this identity marker of sinner. Sure, we sin, but we're never called sinners. We're never told to take on that identity, that disorienting identity where we don't understand who we are. Let me give you a case study. Think about how the Apostle Paul describes himself in Romans chapter 7 in his battle with sin. So what we're saying here is this. Nowhere in the New Testament are you called a sinner. But yes, you still sin. And yes, you're still responsible for that sin. But it's not who you are anymore. It's not your identity. In Romans 7, Paul describes this battle that he has in his heart. Because he wants to do the things that honor God, but he finds himself doing the opposite. And the very things he doesn't want to do anymore because he's been made new. He doesn't want to live to this sinful stuff anymore. He wants to do new things. And the very thing he finds himself not wanting to do because he's a new person, he finds himself falling into and doing. And look at how he describes the role that sin plays in his identity in Romans 7, verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. What he's saying is it's not who I am anymore. It's the old me that's rearing up his ugly head, but it's not my identity in Christ. Look at verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. It's the sin that's in in me. I still sin. The the Bible teaches that uh, when you become a Christian, you're no longer culpable for the penalty of sin. But in this life, you still deal with the very power of sin. Sin's power is still all around us, but it's not who you are anymore. Jesus has made you new if you're in Christ. It's not your identity. It is something that you do. So what what is Paul saying here? What, What he's telling them is this. They are saints who sometimes sin, not sinners who sometimes do right. You are saints who sometimes still sin, but you're not sinners who sometimes occasionally do the right thing. Think of it this way. Paul's identity is wrapped up in the new man that he is in Christ. And he battled it. He needed to be reminded of this. He would say all the time, remember my former life. Remember when I used to do these things. Remember who I used to be. But I'm no longer that person. My identity, I'm a Christian, defined by the faithfulness of Jesus, not by my sin. I still struggle with sin, but it doesn't define who I am if I'm in Christ. And then he closes up this descriptor with this, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Meaning, he's reminding, in order to have that identity of not being controlled by your sin, not being identified by the sin that you struggle with. In order to have that identity, you must be faithful to Jesus because you cannot do it in your own willpower. It says to the ones who are faithful in Christ Jesus. It's this beautiful reminder. And here's the thing, this identity struggle, this is exactly how Satan works in our, lo- in our world today. But it's nothing new. His tactics are not new. In fact, Jesus struggled with this too. Jesus had this very same struggle in, in the early part of his ministry. Right as his ministry is getting started, in Matthew chapter 3, we're told about the baptism of Jesus, the very beginning of his ministry. And in Matthew chapter 3, it says that when Jesus is baptized, the heavens open up and God speaks. And God speaks very identify-oriented words, very identity-oriented words. And he says this about Jesus. this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, declaring who Jesus is. Well, Matthew chapter 3 is full of really interesting things. There's people, so it's not lonely. It's it's in a place where there's water and there's life and and you hear the voice of God. Well, Matthew chapter 4 is completely different. Matthew chapter 4, it says that he was led into the wilderness. So it's not a place of water, but dryness. He's in the wilderness, he's in the desert, and so he's by himself. So he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. There's no other people. So it is a lonely place. It's a difficult place to be. And it's not the voice of God that speaks, but the voice of Satan. Matthew's doing something on purpose here in chapters three and four. In chapter four, the enemy comes and look at what it says. Jesus, led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I would be too. The tempter came to him and he said, if you are the son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. So it's an interesting temptation here. If you ask most people, what were the temptations that Jesus experienced in the desert? You're going to say, well, the first one was to turn the stones into bread. I would say, no, that's the second one. Because the first temptation came, it was a little more subtle, and it's the way our enemy works. He comes in and just subtly does something. You'll notice here, we learned something in this passage about the very nature of evil, that very often Satan's not coming to oppose what's right, he's coming to manipulate it. He wants to just change it just a little bit. Notice what he does to Jesus. In chapter 3, God declares, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the very first words out of Satan's mouth are, If you are the son. Just a subtle twist. Nothing too big. Not a tidal wave of change. Just a subtle little twist of the truth. If you really are the son. You might translate it, Since you are the son, right? So Jesus, let's just you, since you are the son and you're hungry, it's been 40 days, you should just eat, Jesus. Why can't you eat? You're hungry. Turn the stones into bread and eat, Jesus. You deserve it. You're the son of God, right? You should eat. Subtle temptation to say, hey, Jesus, you can define your own true north. You don't need this compass. You don't need that. It's fascinating. Think of it this way. Think of it like music. Right? Ben gets up here and he strums and it sounds awesome and he sings. Okay? Now, if I got up there and I wanted to sing the same songs, which will never happen, I promise, no matter what. And I grab the guitar, it's not going to sound the same. It is not. It's going to be crazy, right? But let's say it's somebody else. It's not me. It's somebody who has been practicing, and they're, they're really trying hard. They want to get up here, and they want to sing a song. And so they're, they go to strum the guitar, but they're just one note off on the guitar. Would you notice? Doesn't have to be what Rob would be doing, banging and slamming and trying to make noise. It could be real subtle, and yet it would ruin the whole song. One tiny little change can change everything and ruin it all. That's how Satan works. He'll come in and he'll give you one little thing. If God really loved you, you shouldn't have to go through this. If God was really for you, you should experience the things that you want. And it's that 59-cent magnet just coming in and trying to disorient your life, point you in the direction. And that's the temptation. This is what's happening in Ephesus. They're tempted to look in a lot of directions for their identity in this incredible city. Jesus was tempted the same way. And how did he respond? Look at verse four. It is written, the man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, which literally means a second reading of the law. Here's why that's important. Jesus is not simply memorizing scripture. That's an important discipline and you should do it. He's internalizing it. He didn't just memorize it so he could regurgitate it. He was thinking about it day and night. It was something that was on his mind all the time. He was consumed with thinking about what God had to say about different things. And so in this moment of temptation, at a moment of desperation, when he's physically hungry and he's tempted with this physical temptation, he can respond spiritually knowing who's in charge of his destiny. Who's the one who's supposed to be directing his life? Why? Because he's internalized it because he's captivated by it. Everything about God fascinated him. Let me ask you this. Is the same thing true for you? Really? I mean, really? Put all of the showmanship aside and we're sitting here in a room together just talking as brothers and sisters in Christ. And let me ask you this. Does God fascinate you? Does what he has to say about who you are in Christ fascinate you? Is it the source of life for you? Because if it's not, what is it going to take to get there? Look, this is an interesting, look at verse two. He makes this blessing over them too. As a result of verse one, you get verse two. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might be thinking, "Rob, that's a pretty common opening for the apostle Paul. He opens his letters most of the time like this, and it's in there. It's very common Greco-Roman letter writing style. And you might know all of the background, but here's the deal. There's still a blessing in the words. God doesn't waste words. Every word in scripture is God-breathed. God doesn't babble. He doesn't waste time. And so Paul's blessing here is grace and peace. And I don't know about you living in the world we live in. I would sure would love that. I would love to live a life of grace. I would love to live a life that says I'm no longer held captive by the strongholds of my sin. I still struggle with the power of sin all around me, but it's not who I am. I am in Christ. I am defined by him. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He looks at me and he sees Jesus and that's the life of grace. It's this confidence knowing I'm not identified by my sin. I know my true north. I know the compass and nothing's gonna distract me from it. I would love that. And then peace. Oh man. Is there anything we need more than that? This peace in our soul and in our spirit, when everything's ripping us in a hundred different directions, I would love to live a life of contentment and peace and to not need more to feed this image that I'm portraying to the world or to live up to the standards that other people are giving me. I just want to honor him. And I want to live at peace. And he says the only way to have that grace and that peace is in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if you want to experience grace and peace, you need to remember who you are. For many of us in the room, we are Christians. We've been following Jesus. We've just kind of lost our way. There's been a lot of magnets pulling our true north in different directions, and we're just disoriented. We need to kind of set, right, we need to come back and say, man, I don't need all these other things. The thing I need more than anything else is the word of God, and we need to get back into it. Look, it's a new year. And as much as it can sound cliche, it is a great time to rethink, man, where is my mind and my heart when it comes to the word of God? Have I even been reading it, let alone memorizing it, meditating on it and loving it? And then there's others in the room that you've never made that decision. You've never become a Christian. And you sit in the room like this and you're like, man, I sure would like grace and peace. That sounds good. And the Bible's really clear what you do in order to become a Christian. You believe that Jesus is who He said He was. That Jesus came and, though tempted, never sinned, and He lived that perfect life that you are incapable of living. And look, if we're honest, you know it. You you know you can't live that perfect life, but He did. And then He died for your sins, and He defeated death and resurrected from the dead. You say, "I believe that that is true." And I repent of all the things that have kept me from that truth. I repent of all the things that I've looked to to get my identity. All the things that I've looked to to get disoriented and confused. I want to turn in a different direction. I want to head toward that true north. You confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is who he said he was. He is the Lord of my life. He will direct. I am going to live under the the, the lordship of Jesus. He's going to be the director of my life. and I'm going to follow where he leads me to go. And you're baptized into Christ. And the Bible says you go down into a watery grave and you come up out of that water. You are a new creation. The Bible says your sins are wiped clean. You've experienced that grace in that moment and that peace comes. And you're given this gift of the Holy Spirit whose primary job in your life is to bring to the front of your mind the words of Jesus, your true north. So here's the thing this morning. We're going to worship and take communion. And for those of you that are in Christ, this is a time to recalibrate your heart, your affection toward your true north, Jesus, and to be grateful for what he did for you. But those of you that are wrestling with me, I've not made that decision. I, I, I need to make that decision to become a Christian. I'm going to stand in the back of the room, and I would love nothing more than to talk to you about what it means for you to begin to follow Jesus and let him become that true north. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you that though there are so many things in this world that are pulling for our attention and our affection that want to uh, define our identity, you have given us access to your word. And the words that we find in scripture that tell us who we are, beloved, that we have a purpose, that you have a plan for us. Father, that we can experience grace and peace. We are saints set aside, created on purpose and for a purpose. God, we need that. In a world of distraction, we need that truth. So we ask for that blessing right now in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.